Welcome to the African American Hour. I'm Byron Buckner, bringing you an hour of information, opinion, culture, and history about the African American community. On this program, I'll have four readings from American Banker Magazine, Vanity Fair Magazine. I'll wrap up the program with a book review from the New York Review of Books. And I'm going to start with an article from the Washington Post newspaper that's about Tulsa, Oklahoma. The title is, Viola Fletcher Waited 102 Years for Reparations. She's Still Waiting. The oldest living survivor of the Tulsa Massacre is a key witness for a national movement gaining momentum. It was written by Wesley Lowry and published October 4, 2023. Her mother's screams awoke the seven-year-old girl just moments after she drifted off to sleep. V, get up, child. If we don't leave right now, we could end up dead. What Viola Fletcher witnessed that night in 1921 has haunted her for a century. Her entire childhood has been set ablaze. Families fled Tulsa's bustling Greenwood District as torches flew through their windows. Explosives rained down from low-flying planes that cut across a smoke-darkened sky above. Bodies piled along the roadside, some eyes still open, forever frozen on the terror, as soot stuck to the air like dark, bitter snowflakes. Fletcher watched a man with a shotgun blow a neighbor's head from his shoulders. She writes in Don't Let Them Bury My Story, a memoir published this year. Fletcher, her family, and their entire neighborhood were the victims of a lie. Their lives were upended and livelihoods destroyed when hundreds of enraged white residents rioted after accusations that a 19-year-old black man had assaulted a 17-year-old white girl, followed by inflammatory coverage of the alleged incident in the Tulsa Tribune. The man was arrested and the accusations were false. The 16-year-old terror left hundreds dead, thousands displaced in a stretch of 35 blocks of Greenwood, a neighborhood so prosperous it was dubbed Black Wall Street, reduced to ash. Gone were offices of black dentists, doctors, lawyers, real estate brokers, and insurance salesmen. Black-owned theaters, newspapers, groceries, restaurants, hotels, and barbershops were all burned to the ground. The neighborhood I fell asleep in that night was rich, not just in terms of wealth, but in culture, community, heritage. And my family had a beautiful home, Fletcher testified to Congress in 2021, Within a few hours, all that was gone. In the years that followed, Fletcher's family lived in a tent about an hour north of the city, settling into a new life as sharecroppers, lucky to earn a dollar a day for handling livestock or picking cotton. Family members would often jolt awake, screaming about fire falling from the sky. When she was 16, Fletcher moved back to Tulsa, where streets that bustled with life just a few years ago now carried the weight of trauma, she writes. The destruction, she continues, was just the visible version of the scars that were inside of us. Fletcher fled again, this time to California, where she took a shipyard job to support the war effort. She married, but when her husband turned abusive, she set off again on her own. Before long, she was back in Oklahoma, a single mother of three with a fourth-grade education, working as a maid to some of Tulsa's richest white families. As she washed their dishes and tucked their little ones into bed, she wondered whether they were among those responsible, yet never held accountable for her own childhood's destruction. For as long as slavery has been outlawed in America, there have been black Americans demanding compensation for the horrors of the institution and its vestiges. But in the years since the police killing of George Floyd, 
Local governments, civil rights attorneys, and activists have embraced the cause of financial redress with a new fervor and ambition. According to the activists, there are more than 100 local efforts underway across the country. Although many of these efforts, such as housing and economic stimulus programs, fall short of what purists would consider reparations, that is, direct payments to descendants of those who were victims of historic racial sins, they've nevertheless contributed to an era of redress. This is certainly one of the most significant moments in the history of the United States, said Ron Daniels, who leads the National African American Reparations Commission, a collaborative of activists and academics. Daniels notes that Tulsa, one of the most egregious wounds in the history of black people in this country, remains a key reparations battleground. If there is any case for a local reparations initiative for the harms faced by the black community and the legacies of slavery, it's Tulsa, Oklahoma, said Robin Ruth Simmons, who as a member of the Evanston, Illinois City Council, championed one of the first local redress efforts, which this year began making $25,000 payments to a few dozen black residents. And so on the second Wednesday in May this year, Viola Fletcher spent the morning of her 109th birthday in the front row of a seventh-floor courtroom at the Tulsa Courthouse. She had dressed elegantly, her green and white blouse poking out from beneath the tan and white scarf wrapped around her shoulders for warmth, and sat silently, at times leaning forward in her wheelchair as she waited to learn whether the lawsuit that is probably her last living chance at justice would be allowed to proceed. To her right sat Leslie Benningfield Randall, 108, who was six years old when the mob burned her house down to the ground and drove her family from Greenwood. And between them sat Fletcher's younger brother Hughes, Uncle Red Van Ellis, 102, who at times dabbed tears from his eyes with an aging white handkerchief. There were over 10,000 people that suffered. These are the three that's left. No one had a day in court. They just want a day in court, attorney Demario Solomon Simmons pleaded to the judge as he gestured back toward the galley where the survivors sat. She had to escape this inferno, he added later, pointing to Fletcher and then back at the black and white photos of the charred wreckage that were being projected onto a screen hung from the courtroom's side wall. 102 years later, she has to be here in court. Fletcher's case is the second time in recent decades in which a court has considered compensation for those who survived the inferno. The first came in 2003 when a legal team led by Johnny Cochran, Charles Ogletree, and John Hope Franklin filed a federal lawsuit on behalf of the 123 survivors and more than 200 descendants. There were government defendants clearly culpable for the crime thanks to a 1997 bipartisan commission which concluded that local law enforcement had provided firearms to the white rioters. But in Oklahoma, civil rights claims carry a two-year statute of limitations, meaning that the suit would have had to have been filed in 1923, and the case for a waiver was denied. In 2007, Solomon Simmons, who clerked for Ogletree as a law student, and others pursued congressional legislation that would have removed the statute of limitations in the case, but the bill never made it out of committee. Our momentum really hit a halt, he recalled recently. A lot of the survivors were dying. By 2016, fewer than 20 remained. And with each passing year, the list whittled further. Each year around the anniversary, he would publish an op-ed calling for redress. But justice seemed an increasingly distant fantasy. Then in May 2020, Solomon Simmons stumbled upon the story of Viola Fletcher. 
For decades, many of the massacre's victims feared that the perpetrators would harm them again if they ever spoke out about it publicly. Fletcher told me she still slept with the light on, curled up in a living room chair pointed toward the door of her apartment, ready, if necessary, to make another escape. She never talked about what she had survived to anyone. They were told by their parents that if they discussed it, they would be killed, explains Ike Howard, Fletcher's grandson, who, after many years, finally got her to acknowledge that she had witnessed the massacre, but only on the explicit condition that he not repeat the tale. You had a situation where the local government had endorsed this behavior and these criminals got away. This is one generation removed from slavery. The threat of violence, if they talked about what happened, was something they took seriously. But in the early days of the coronavirus pandemic, Fletcher agreed to let her loved ones tell the local news about the drive-by birthday parade they threw to celebrate her 106th birthday, inadvertently outing her as the oldest living survivor of the massacre just one year before its centennial. I told them I didn't want a birthday party, she quipped to a local television reporter. But what did I get? Oh, my goodness. From there, it didn't take long for Solomon Simmons to track her down, and she agreed to join his pursuit of reparations, becoming a plaintiff in a civil suit filed in 2020 demanding financial redress from the city, county, and other municipal entities that participated in the destruction. She was still afraid, Howard recalled, adding that he and other family members were able to convince her that they would handle her security and that, as more time passed and she spoke out more frequently, she became more comfortable. She know I don't play about my grandmother. As the case began making its way through court, the 100th anniversary of the massacre brought a wave of attention and money to Tulsa. More than $30 million was spent constructing a historical center, and events commemorated the date. Fletcher testified before Congress, was honored in Ghana, and began working on her memoir, Moved by media coverage of the ongoing battle for justice, New York philanthropist Ed Mitson gave $1 million to Fletcher and the other living survivors. Fletcher left her one-bedroom apartment and moved into one of the nicest nursing homes in the state. Still, Solomon Simmons is quick to note, none of this amounted to redress. In fact, he says that one foundation told him directly that there was no appetite among local philanthropy for providing their survivors with money that could be passed on to their children and grandchildren. The reality is that, in the United States of America, the only time black people in particular have ever received any justice has been through litigation, said Tulsa Councilwoman Vanessa Hall Harper, who helped spearhead an apology issued by the city of Tulsa two years ago. As attorneys argue publicly for compensation, black members of the Tulsa City Council moved to capitalize on the centennial, introducing a bill issuing a formal apology and agreeing to hold community sessions on what, if anything else, the city owes to survivors of the massacre and their descendants. The sessions dubbed After Apology were led in part by Greg Robinson, a local activist who still remembers his father pointing out blight and redevelopment in Greenwood through the car windows as they drove past, saying, They are building buildings on top of your ancestors' homes. Each session included an overview of the historical record and the long fight to establish it and an analysis of the racial inequities that persist in Tulsa today. More than 500 people participated in total, about 35% of whom were white, although it remains unclear what, if any, action will result from the process. It's almost like House of Cards on a political level, said Keith Young, 
a political strategist and former elected official in Asheville, North Carolina, where he helped spawn reparations efforts. Young consulted with black lawmakers in Tulsa as they debated how to navigate the issue. They are never going to call it reparations, and it ain't reparations. It's not. It's a Trojan horse. The concept of reparations is broadly unpopular. Seventy percent of Americans in a May Washington Post-Ipsos poll said that the federal government should not pay money to black Americans whose ancestors were enslaved. That's especially true when the would-be recipients are black, notes Tatishe Nteta, capital T-A-T-I-S-H-E, capital N-T-E-T-A, a political scientist and pollster at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. A key factor in opposition, his research shows, is that some Americans, 28%, do not believe that black Americans deserve to be compensated. It's all about deservingness, Nteta says. It's really informed by negative racial views and stereotypes of African Americans and what they would do with the money. A 75% majority of black Americans support the federal government paying reparations. The short-term workaround, Nteta and others note, is to pursue reparations and redress programs in liberal cities and safely democratic states in order to set precedent and build momentum that could spread nationally, much like legalized marijuana and same-sex marriage. Even if some local redress programs are not technically reparations, I like to tell people that they're cousins. At the heart of it, we're still talking about addressing the results of racism, says attorney Areva Martin, who represents hundreds of survivors and descendants of Section 14, a one-square-mile tract in downtown Palm Springs raised in the mid-1960s to make way for development. That case is part of a wave of efforts that have made California an epicenter of the current movement for reparations and redress. That makes Tulsa an even more crucial battleground, a majority-white, Republican-run southern city where there remain living victims of a historic injustice. We're on borrowed time. Every year that we don't get economic justice for black people, generations behind us are being set further and further behind, said Robinson. If you can get it done in Tulsa, it just sets up so beautifully for a national model. Viola Fletcher's lawsuit was designed as a bit of a legal bank shot. Because the civil rights claim had been tossed in the early 2000s, Solomon Simmons modeled his effort on a 2019 suit filed by the Oklahoma Attorney General's Office against Johnson & Johnson under the Public Nuisance Act, which successfully argued that the drug maker had fueled the opioid epidemic with deceptive marketing of painkillers. The city, state, and law enforcement agencies had aided the violence in Tulsa, Solomon Simmons argued, and that the violence and destruction still directly contributed to the inequitable reality experienced by residents of Greenwood today. Government attorneys argued the case was an attempt at dodging the statute of limitations issues and should be dismissed. Ultimately, in May 2022, Tulsa County District Judge Carolyn Wall allowed it to move forward. I've seen so many survivors die in my 20-plus years working on this issue, Solomon Simmons said, choking back tears as he addressed the media following the ruling. I just don't want to see the last three die without justice. The legal proceedings stretched on until this May's hearing, after which Uncle Red declared, we're going to win from his wheelchair as the legal team gathered in the hallway. Fletcher was less confident sitting in silence as she stretched her neck to point her one remaining good ear toward the conversation among her attorneys. 
Judge Wall announced that she wanted more time to make her ruling, but the decision stretched from days to weeks, which Fletcher and her family took as an ominous sign. There is a sense, Fletcher's grandson remarked as the family waited, that they are waiting for someone to die, that they're hoping someone will die. It was another two months before word came out, late on a Friday evening in July. Wall came down in favor of the defendants, tossing the public nuisance claim. Solomon Simmons said he heard about the ruling when a local reporter reached out to ask for comment. Fletcher and her family were heartbroken. Their supporters were enraged. Solomon Simmons and his team quickly began preparing an appeal. During a phone interview a few weeks later, Fletcher was direct and emphatic when asked if she still believed she had a chance of seeing justice in her lifetime. Yes, yes, yes. A few weeks after that, in early August, her attorney called with a new hope. The state Supreme Court had decided to take up the case. The century-long fight was alive again. That was the article titled, Viola Fletcher Waited 102 Years for Reparations. She's Still Waiting. The oldest living survivor of the Tulsa Massacre is a key witness for a national movement gaining momentum. It was written by Wesley Lowry, published August 4, 2023, at the WashingtonPost.com website. My next reading is from the website AmericanBanker.com. The title is The Most Powerful Women in Finance, number three, The Sunda Brown Ducket, TIAA, by Mary Ellen Egan, and it was published September 27, 2023. The Sunda Brown Ducket, her first name is spelled capital T-H-A-S-U-N-D-A, is well into her second year as president and CEO of TIAA, the financial services giant with $1.3 trillion in assets under management, more than 4.7 million individual customers, and more than 12,000 institutional clients. As part of TIAA's mission, Duckett is doubling down on her efforts to ensure that Americans save enough for retirement. Last year, TIAA launched its Retire Inequality Campaign, aimed at raising awareness of retirement savings gaps and closing them. The truth is, 40% of all Americans run out of money at retirement. And so this is a crisis. Women retire with 30% less than men, and 54% of black Americans won't have enough savings to retire. And so when we think about the opportunity and what this campaign is all about, first it's about heightening the awareness, making sure that we all understand that this is a crisis, and it's one that we should all be focused on closing, she said. As part of her efforts to focus on TIAA on retirement, on August 1st, the financial services company completed the sale of the $36.8 billion asset TIAA Bank to a group of investors including Warburg Pincus. TIAA will continue to hold a non-controlling stake in the now-renamed Everbank. We have a phenomenal asset management company called Nuveen, and our focus is to continue to make sure that Nuveen, capital N-U-V-E-E-N, continues to grow, not just here in America, but globally, Duckett said, about the divesture. And we know that the cornerstone of ensuring that Americans can have a secure retirement is advice, so we're continuing to build out our wealth management business. Duckett, who came to TIAA following a nearly five-year stint as the CEO of Chase Consumer Banking, knows all too well the challenges facing Americans who struggle financially. Duckett's father, Otis Brown, was a warehouse worker and truck driver. 
He and his wife, Rosie, often struggled financially while raising Duckett and her two brothers. She often publicly recalls the day she sat down with her father to plan his retirement. While he had a pension, he went 20 or more years without establishing a 401k, and once he did, he didn't contribute the maximum amount because he didn't know he was eligible. I had to tell my dad that it wasn't enough, she said, and my father did everything he knew how to do. But the message did not get to the person in the warehouse. During her tenure as the CEO of Chase Consumer Banking, Duckett led a business unit with more than $600 billion in deposits and launched Chase's five-year plan to open 400 branches in new markets across the U.S. In that role, she continued to advocate for financial literacy, as well as the need for the industry to push harder for more diversity in its ranks. She launched a financial literacy campaign in partnership with Essence called Currency Conversations to promote greater financial acumen and knowledge for communities of color and for young black women in particular. She's the executive sponsor of the bank's Advancing Black Pathways program, which promoted apprenticeships and post-graduation roles at Chase for black students' education opportunities, as well as professional development programs for younger African-American executives recruited to the bank. As one of only three female black CEOs to ever run a Fortune 500 company, and the first female CEO of the more than 100-year-old TIAA, Duckett is committed to promoting diversity and inclusion efforts, not just within her company, but within the industry as a whole. We have to believe that talent is created equally. Opportunity is not. And if we believe that, then we can acknowledge that there's more work to do. Secondly, it's about disaggregating the data, looking throughout our organization and encouraging others to do the same, to say, where do we see that we don't have the full aperture of talent in particular areas of the business, she said. Thirdly, it's about looking at our policies and practices. Is there anything that's getting in the way that's not enabling the acceleration of women or people of color so that we can really make sure there's structural things that we can do better to improve? And then lastly, what gets measured gets done. We know that with talent, the job is never done. And so it's something that we have to continue to stay focused on. Outside of the office, Duckett serves on a handful of boards, including Nike, National Medal of Honor Museum, and Economic Club of New York. And in honor of her parents, she founded the Otis and Rosie Brown Foundation, whose mission it is to highlight people and organizations who use ordinary means to impact their communities in extraordinary ways. That was the profile piece from AmericanBanker.com titled, The Most Powerful Women in Finance, Number 3, Thesunda Brown Duckett, TIAA. It was written by Mary Ellen Egan and published September 27, 2023. If you've just joined us, you're listening to the African American Hour. I'm Byron Buckner. Next on the African American Hour is an article from Vanity Fair magazine and its VanityFair.com website. The title is The Outsiders, Why Black Audiences Love Italian-American Screen Icons. It was written by Morgan Jenkins and published September 25, 2023. It's the greatest love story. That movie is emblazoned on us. It romanticizes the decadence and excess that is hip-hop. DJ Quick says, from the Zoom rectangle, holding up a photo of himself wearing a t-shirt featuring the image of one of Al Pacino's most famous roles. 
Scarface's Tony Montana. Though Scarface centers on the rise and fall of a fictitious Cuban immigrant turned Miami cocaine kingpin, a story inspired by Al Capone, an Italian-American mobster, and directed by Brian De Palma, who is also of Italian descent, it resonates with Quick and with me. We are African Americans, born and raised on opposite sides of the country with upbringings marked by different generations. And yet we have this deep love for Italian-American actors and the country's cinema at large that bridges the gap between us. Quick vividly remembers when the VHS of Scarface first made its way to his California neighborhood, while I fondly recall a Christmas morning from my childhood when my mother gave me copies of the Rocky movies and the Godfather trilogy. I grew up in South Jersey where you could no more extract the Italian-American influence from my formative years than you could separate salt from saline. Around the dinner table, my loved ones would joke about Sicily's proximity to Africa. We'd talk lovingly about the seasoning in our respective cuisines and about how some Southern Italians looked like us. My mother passed down an abiding love of Pacino, Sylvester Stallone, Robert De Niro, and Joe Pesci. I'd catch her watching The Sopranos when I'd come home from school. The sense that Italians and African Americans were somehow connected felt ingrained, but I've recently started to think about the way cinema reflects back to us a group with its own history of stereotyping, marginalization, and class. When I would watch Italian Americans on screen, I recognized that there was a white-black binary. At the same time, there was a spectrum of whiteness, and the less wasp-presenting one was darker skin and hair, thicker accents, flamboyant clothing, the more bigotry they received. Since the late 19th century, Italian immigrants and African Americans have lived close to one another, especially throughout cities and neighborhoods in the Northeast. Italians were not part of the white American imagination and social structure until later. John Gennari, author of Flavor and Soul, Italian America and its African American Edge, tells me, like my own, Gennari's mother grew up in New Jersey, which, along with New York and southern New England, he calls the Sinatra Belt. Italian-Americans and African-Americans often worked alongside each other, whether in the southern fields or further north. The two populations overlap in their migrations to the north. Ours is famously recognized as the Great Migration. When emancipation comes and most formerly enslaved black folk want to get away from the plantation economy, Gennari said, and those workers need to be replaced and southern Italian immigrants has a lot to do with that. Recall the scene from Spike Lee's Jungle Fever in which John Tuturo's Pauli Carbone is perusing a newspaper when Nicholas Tuturo's Vinny demands to know what's so important about his reading material. Pauli. These Sicilian guys in Louisiana at a factory at around 1899, and they gave the black workers equal status in the factory. And so the regular white people found out about it, and they lynched the five Italian guys who owned the factory. Vinny. Good. They got what they deserved. They shouldn't have gotten involved with no ends in the first place. It's a striking scene, in part because of its fidelity to history. Extrajudicial killings of Italian-Americans weren't at all uncommon. In fact, the largest documented mass lynching in American history in 1891 was when 11 Italian-Americans and Italian immigrants were accused of murdering a police chief in New Orleans. 
Public sentiment wasn't in their favor, with even the mayor accusing Italians of being idle, vicious, and worthless, and without courage, honor, truth, pride, religion, or any quality that goes to make a good citizen. Under Jim Crow, they weren't classified as black, but neither did they enjoy the protections enjoyed by whites. It followed that in both the North and South, noted Gennari, Italians would cross color lines not only to do business with African Americans, but to fraternize and have intimate relationships with them. This history depicted in films such as Jungle Fever and A Bronx Tale have their roots in Harlem and Belmont. In these films, Italian-American men have romantic affairs with black women amid a backdrop of racist economic anxiety and urban sprawl within their respective neighborhoods. Whiteness, as it relates to Italian-American culture, has always been thorny. Vinny frequently uses the N-word, and oftentimes racism toward black people was core to assimilation for white immigrant minority groups. It's apparent in The Sopranos when Carmela scorns her mother for lamenting how dark Meadow's complexion was as a baby, or when Tony vents to Dr. Melfi about how America opened the floodgates to Italian immigrants so that they could make dynastic families such as the Carnegies and the Rockefellers richer through their labor. Though African people were captured via slavery, their labor was just as necessary for the bolstering of American infrastructure. You see it, too, in Quentin Tarantino's True Romance, when Dennis Hopper's Clifford Worley notes, Sicilians were spawned by ends. Sicilians have black blood pumping through their hearts. When waves of immigrants came to America, including Italians, Ku Klux Klan membership skyrocketed. Catholic churches were burned, while cartoons depicted Italian immigrants as being less than human. In David Rodiger's Working Towards Whiteness, he writes that one of the most common anti-Italian slurs during the 20th century, Guinea, G-U-I-N-E-A, was originally directed toward enslaved black people from Guinea, a stretch of the West African coastline from Sierra Leone to Benin. But with the mass migration of Italians beginning in the 1890s, the pejorative was redirected. Similar to depictions of African-American men and their masculinity, stereotypes have persisted about Italian immigrant men and their propensity toward violence. Nothing captures that better than a depiction of organized crime. Mob cinema has been around for decades. As early as 1906, silent-era shorts propagandized Italian immigrants as being excessively emotional and violence-prone. In 1906, the Black Hand is about two Italian-Americans who blackmail a butcher. The characters were versions of Mustache Pete, a term used to describe a Sicilian mafioso who arrived in the United States at the turn of the 20th century. Mustache Pete was an insult that younger Italian-Americans would direct toward their elders, and zips were what the elders directed toward the youth before the larger population co-opted these slurs toward the entire group. Mob movies persisted for decades, but their tone changed in the 1970s when between Watergate and the end of the Vietnam War, traditional American morality was being challenged. Things were turned inside out, says Dr. Todd Boyd, professor of cinema and media studies at the University of Southern California School of Cinematic Arts. People who are thought to be legitimate and above board are revealed to be quite the opposite. There's an appetite for people who are normally looked on as criminals to be seen in a more humanistic light. Enter two landmark cultural touchstones of 1972. 
the Godfather's Don Corleone and Superfly's Youngblood Priest. One Italian, the other African-American, both New Yorkers who achieved status and riches in America through illegal means. Unlike the race films of prior decades such as 1943's Stormy Weather and 1954's Carmen Jones, which combated the racism toward African-Americans in popular culture, exploitation films like Superfly were not interested in racial uplift. Their protagonists were profane talking slicksters who had no problem talking about white hegemony or chasing someone down for money. Both The Godfather and Superfly were contemporaneously criticized for propagating stereotypes about their respective communities, but the critics couldn't keep them out of the canon. It's the ultimate outsider sensibility, says Boyd. How does an outsider potentially navigate their way to the inside of American society? People find identity in these non-traditional characters who are able to expose the hypocrisy inherent to the system itself. The outsider sensibility that Boyd refers to in The Godfather set the precedent for Italian-American films that followed its astronomical success. The outsider, or the underdog, seizes fortune and power, often through illegal means, as a way to access privileged spaces that were traditionally exclusionary to those of his ethnicity. Take, for example, the tense scene in The Godfather 2, when G.D. Spratlin's Senator Gary justifies a demand for a larger-than-normal payment for a Nevada gaming license from Michael Corleone. I don't like your kind of people, he says. I don't like your kind of people. I don't like to see you come to this clean country with your oily hair dressed up in those silk suits, trying to pass yourself off as decent Americans. I despise your masquerade, the dishonest way you pose yourself. Both Geary and Corleone understand that this masquerade is Italian-Americans adopting the style and comportment of wasps in order to get a piece of the American dream. Kill Adrian Scott, a millennial director of David Makes Man and the Bobby Brown story, hones in on the arc of Michael Corleone. People forget that Michael was the good son. He was the war hero. He was also the person who wanted to marry outside of his ethnicity. It's the aspiring of the erasure of non-whiteness as an Italian. To Scott, the Corleone dynasty exemplifies what happens when those like Michael buy into the American dream and what happens when they are prohibited from it. Such is the rise and eventual fall of Michael Corleone, the Ivy League-educated veteran son of working-class Italian immigrants who tries to play by the rules, breaks him, and suffers for his choices. Perhaps no film centers another working-class Italian male protagonist better than Rocky, released two years after Godfather II in 1976. Unlike Michael Corleone, however, the titular character talks slowly and carries a gentleness about him that others mistake for stupidity. Balboa is not a gangster. He's not Tony Montana. But his underprivileged social status coupled with his strong family-oriented nature has left a mark on black audiences. Boyd has spent an inordinate amount of time convincing people that the story of Rocky Balboa has racist, anti-black undertones because of how Apollo Creed and Mr. T are depicted as being brash and flamboyant or sexually aggressive, respectively. Robert Daniels, one of the foremost black millennial film critics, can understand why Rocky resonates in spite of its flaws. When solicited for this interview, Daniels tells me that he was reminded of a specific joke from Eddie Murphy's 1987 Raw comedy special where he spends a segment discussing the film. 
Italians are funny people because they act like ends. Like myself, Daniels also admitted that he too was given the Rocky box set as a child. For Daniels, he grew up on the west side of Chicago. He sees a class solidarity element to it because unlike Apollo, who was rich and famous at the start of the movie, Rocky is still working class. But from a wider cultural touch point, at the time of Rocky's release in the mid-70s, there was an open lane for working class underdog narratives. According to Daniels, the end of black exploitation and Rocky overlap a little bit. Between the end of black exploitation and the beginning of the black renaissance of TV and film in the 90s, there is a solid 15 years where Rocky is the closest you're going to get. By the 80s, American culture shifted again. Society at large was still interested in underdog stories, but the depictions were much more overt and flamboyant than its predecessors. It didn't hurt that the American economy was doing exceptionally well. Too well, perhaps, given the levels of greed and consumerism. Movies like Wall Street and Fatal Attraction depicted this era of yuppie men in corporate jobs whose morality and integrity are little or nowhere to be found. Scarface, released in 1983, was different. Though Tony Montana and Gordon Gekko were both extremely wealthy non-wasps, we see more of Montana's origin story. Montana first lived in a Miami slum, whereas our first impressions of Gecko are within a swanky Manhattan neighborhood. Initially, Scarface was neither a blockbuster nor a critical success. Since then, however, the story of Tony Montana has reached an almost mythical status, one that boy attributes to black people, particularly rappers. The film really put up when it was put out on VHS and it appealed to many rappers, particularly from the West Coast. The whole gangster element of hip-hop, which is linking the streets to the culture, a film like Scarface is very much a part of that. The film's a cautionary tale, but I also thought that one of the reasons many black people like Scarface is because it's biblical. Scarface also rose to popularity concurrent with the crack epidemic coursing through black and Latino neighborhoods. The movie was a good influence on us, changing the economic drudgery and rigmarole that we were going through, recalled Quick. Everybody wanted to be Tony Montana. Hip-hop legend Big Daddy Kane echoed to me a bit of Quick's memories, but saw another factor in the reverence for Scarface. Loyalty. Montana, said Kane, had that from nothing to something attitude, coming from poverty to become successful because of what he learned in the streets. It's the street mentality that had black audiences across generations, from rappers like Junior Mafia and Jay-Z to younger artists like Chief Keef and DDG find a kinship in Montana. It's why Corleone and Balboa have captured our imagination across generations. By nature of their birth, they began their lives as social outcasts just like the vast majority of African Americans. Their success by any means necessary is as much of a revenge fantasy on white Americana as it is a cautionary tale. The Godfather serves as an umbrella for all the movies and its stars that came out from under it. The themes were ever-present. Loyalty, family and tradition, social marginalization, success through the exposure of the system and the subversion of it. We see these undercurrents carry on through the 90s with films like Casino and Goodfellas and into the 21st century with The Sopranos where even Carmela's name is a nod to his cinematic ancestor, The Godfather. This is particularly why black people, irrespective of age, can have discussions about Italian-American cinema. 
They bind us together in a cultural tapestry of our childhood, deepest desires, and angst toward the racism and classism that should have never been our own to shoulder. The game is rigged. Each ethnic group has known this since our people landed on the shores of this country either by captivity or through immigration. And unfortunately, not much has changed. Italian Americans and African Americans are still discriminated against. The American dream is still a chimera as racial wealth gaps persist and our interpretations of crime and who gets criminalized remain hyper-focused on the behavior of non-wasps. It is with this reason that the Corleone family, over half a century old, is just as much a fixture in a black American household as Tony Soprano. They are family as we feel like family to them. In spite of the racism and tribalism that separates us, as two communities who know what it's like to be on the outside, to be surveilled yet not seen, spoken to yet looked down upon, we want the gangster or the working class boxer, the underdog, to win. Because when these characters win, they mock the social hierarchies put in place to subjugate us. When they win, we are thrilled to see what is possible. If only for a moment. That was the article, The Outsiders, Why Black Audiences Love Italian-American Screen Icons. It was written by Morgan Jerkins, published September 25, 2023, at VanityFair.com. I'm going to wrap up today's African-American Hour with an article from the New York Review of Books. The title of the article is we Return Fighting, written by Gary Young. The title of the book being reviewed is Half American, The Epic Story of African Americans Fighting World War II at Home and Abroad by Matthew F. Delmont. It was published October 19, 2023. In the summer of 1944, First Sergeant Jefferson Wiggins was just outside the French town of Saint-Lô, on his way to help liberate the Netherlands when a woman offered him a bottle of Calvados. You don't understand how it is to have your freedom, to lose it, and then to regain it, she told him. Wiggins, an African-American soldier from Dothan, Alabama, was in his late teens. He did not speak French, but as he later told the Dutch historian Mika Kirkles for her self-published book, From Alabama to Margraten, he had wanted to reply, Madam, you don't understand how it is to never have had your freedom, and here you are in the middle of a country that you have never been to before, marching through a town which you know nothing about, risking your life to free someone that you will probably never meet again, and knowing that the freedom that you deserve at home, you won't have. The ambivalence that many black soldiers felt toward the United States during World War II was matched only by the ambivalence the nation demonstrated toward the principles on which the war was fought. The United States claimed to be waging a war against tyranny and totalitarianism. It undertook that battle with a racially segregated army while it denied African Americans the vote and their basic civil rights in the South. This was not a contradiction unique to the U.S., Throughout Europe, a myth endures that the war against Nazism and fascism was both logically and manifestly a war for democracy and freedom. Rarely is it challenged. A central element to this claim is obviously true. Conquering the Axis powers in general, and Nazi Germany in particular, was an unequivocal triumph over genocidal and militaristic pathologies. But at the very moment much of Europe and the U.S. were celebrating their roles in securing freedom and democracy, 
Large numbers of people across the globe, most of them black and brown, were fighting to secure freedom either from or within those very powers. Nearly everything about the war, the start and end dates, geography, vital military roles, the home front, and international implications, looks different when viewed from the African-American perspective, writes Matthew F. Delmont in Half American, the epic story of African-Americans fighting World War II at home and abroad. A couple of months after the bombing of Pearl Harbor in December 1941, a 26-year-old from Wichita, Kansas named James G. Thompson wrote a letter to the African-American newspaper, the Pittsburgh Courier, that anticipated the conflicted feelings of Wiggins and so many others as they assisted in the war effort. The V for Victory sign is being displayed prominently in all so-called democratic countries which are fighting for victory over aggression, slavery, and tyranny, Thompson wrote. If this V sign means that to those now engaged in this great conflict, then let we colored Americans adopt a double V for a double victory. The first V for victory over our enemies from without. The second V for victory over our enemies from within. The courier took up Thompson's appeal and soon the double V campaign was embraced by the rest of the black press and the civil rights leadership. It became central to the political aspirations that emerged from black America's conflicted wartime experience. Thompson's early challenge to unquestioning patriotism in a time of war, however, had some in Washington claiming treason. J. Edgar Hoover, the director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, attempted to indict editors at the Baltimore Afro-American under the Espionage Act after they printed Vox Pops quoting black people who were sympathetic to Japan. Jonathan Daniels, an advisor to Franklin D. Roosevelt, lamented the conditional loyalty of black Americans and called the Double B campaign extortion. The loyalty of African Americans was certainly qualified, but it was not, for the most part, conditional. Those aligned with the Double V campaign pledged to join the war effort in the hope that their demands for civil rights would be met later. They did not demand a commitment to civil rights before they would participate. While the army was segregated, the draft itself was less discriminatory. From 1940, all able-bodied men between the ages of 21 and 45 were required to register regardless of their race. This presented a significant challenge to the military, partly because some branches did not want to recruit African Americans at all, but also because, even when a branch did want to, it did not have the infrastructure to set up segregated facilities to house and feed them. Thousands of black Americans went to recruitment centers after President Roosevelt signed the Selective Service Act, Delmont writes, only to be told that the Army did not yet have space for them. All told, more than one million African Americans served while hundreds of thousands worked in the defense industries. The idea that black Americans would see the war as an opportunity to raise demands for full and equal citizenship should have been no surprise. The Double V slogan was powerful not because it was new, but because it was old, Delmont emphasizes. It was deeply rooted in the lived experiences of generations of black Americans who had fought for full citizenship. During the Civil War, Frederick Douglass counseled free blacks to join the Union forces, describing it in 1863 as a double battle against slavery in the South and against prejudice and proscription in the North. After World War I, W.E.B. Du Bois wrote, We return. We return from fighting. 
we return fighting. Make way for democracy. We saved it in France, and by the great Jehovah, we shall save it in the United States of America, or know the reason why. It was precisely being treated as half American that led to what Du Bois had once called Black America's double consciousness. The way racism sets the national and racial identities of African Americans in both contradiction and conflict. Delmont, a history professor at Dartmouth, uses newspaper, government, and military archives, as well as personal testimony from letters and diaries, to detail how African Americans' efforts to fully participate in World War II were often undermined and sometimes grudgingly permitted. Black Americans, he shows, lobbied and campaigned for their right to fight for a country that at times didn't value them enough to let them die for it. White folks would rather lose the war than give up the luxury of race prejudice, Roy Wilkins of the NAACP argued in 1942. The Navy, he said, would rather not have a vital radio message get through than have it sent by black hands or over equipment set up by black technicians. The dominant opinion within the U.S. military was that African Americans were ill-equipped, both intellectually and temperamentally, for warfare. So, with a few exceptions. Black soldiers were allowed only in logistical support roles, transporting and preparing food, ammunition, and parts for tanks, planes, and trucks. Delmont is keen to point out that these contributions were crucial to the Allied victory. American forces could only go as far as their supply lines could take them, which meant they could only go as far as black supply troops could take them. Almost everything the Allies transported to the front passed through the hands of at least one black American. But it was among the exceptions, the five percent of all black troops who did have combat roles, that Black America would find its military legends. The Tuskegee Airmen, who shot down a dozen Nazi planes to provide cover for an amphibious landing of Allied troops at the Battle of Anzio in Italy, or the 761st Black Panther Tank Battalion, which beat back a German Panzer Battalion at the Battle of the Bulge and broke through the Siegfried Line. The 92nd Infantry Division, the only Black infantry division to fight in Europe, also known as the Buffalo Soldiers, was deemed to have underperformed at the time, but that assessment was currently being revisited by military historians, given the harsh racial light under which it was initially made. Then there were individual moments of heroism and prowess too, like that of Doris Miller. The 22-year-old cook from Waco, Texas, who was collecting soil laundry on the USS West Virginia when the Japanese started bombing Pearl Harbor, he raced to the deck and took control of an anti-aircraft gun for which he had no training. Or Vernon Baker, the 25-year-old platoon leader from Cheyenne, Wyoming, who took out three German machine gun nests, an observation post, and a dugout on the mountain stronghold at Castle Agenolfi in the spring of 1945. In an assault in which 19 of his 25 platoon members perished, the next day he volunteered to lead another battalion that went on to secure the mountain. Parallels between the evils that African American soldiers fought overseas and the evils they faced at home were at times laid bare. The comparisons became particularly acute during the summer of 1943 when race riots spread through the U.S. Thurgood Marshall, head lawyer for the NAACP and later the first Black Supreme Court justice, wrote a report on the disturbances in Detroit, which left 34 people dead and more than 600 wounded, most of them black. He called it Gestapo in Detroit. Later that summer, Langston Hughes wrote Beaumont to Detroit, 1943. 
Looky here, America, what you done done? Let things drift until the riots come. You tell me that Hitler is a mighty bad man. I guess he took lessons from the Ku Klux Klan. I ask you this question, cause I want to know how long I got to fight both Hitler and Jim Crow. African American soldiers would at times see the very people the military depicted as their mortal enemies treated with far more respect than they received as neglected step brothers in arms. In a letter to Yank Magazine on April twenty eighth, nineteen forty four, a corporal named Rupert Trimmingham described a journey from Louisiana to Arizona with eight other black soldiers, during which they struggled to find a lunch room that would serve them. Finally, they were permitted to eat in the kitchen of a railroad station, only to see two dozen German prisoners get served at the table in the front. Are these men sworn enemies of this country? He wrote. Are they not taught to hate and destroy all democratic governments? Are we not American soldiers sworn to fight for and die if need be for this our country? Then why are they treated better than we are? So long as white supremacy was the law. The civil rights gains that could be made were limited, but there was still room to make advances in economic rights, even within segregation. Delmont details the interaction between FDR and the African American union leader of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, A. Philip Randolph, who threatened a march on Washington unless the color bar in defense plants and munitions factories was lifted and African Americans allowed to benefit from the war economy. Randolph had initially been skeptical about black participation in the war, seeing in the Allied forces the fingers of England and France dripping with the blood of black, yellow, and brown colonials. But in short time, he began to view Hitler as a threat of a different order, and decided that African Americans had to commit to an Allied victory. He was nevertheless determined that their commitment should find a home in aviation, munitions, and other war industries where decent-paid work was being offered. When Roosevelt tried to fob him off with vague promises, Randolph stood his ground, rejecting many drafts before signing off on what would become Executive Order 8802. The statute outlawed discrimination in defense industries and job training programs, and it would be enforced by a new agency, the Fair Employment Practices Committee. The FEPC, which was inadequately resourced to begin with, was soon gutted of both staff and funds. Nonetheless, Delmont points out, between 1940 and 1944, the employment of African Americans increased 30-fold in the aircraft industry, more than tripled in tank manufacturing, and more than doubled in shipbuilding. The organized Double V campaign articulated the hope that the conclusion of the war would bring significant advances for African Americans. Despite Randolph's meaningful victories in most substantial ways, it did not. One poll showed that white Americans wanted the country pretty much the way it was before the war by a margin of two to one. They were determined to see that wish fulfilled. Many black servicemen, particularly in the South, returned not to confetti and cheers, but to lynch mobs and threats. When a supply sergeant named Henry Murphy arrived back in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, with the Purple Heart he had been awarded in Germany, his father met him with a change of civilian clothes. He told me not to wear my uniform home. He says in Neil McMillan's "Remaking Dixie," the impact of World War II on the American South, because the police were beating up black GIs and searching them. If they had a white woman's picture in his pocket, they'd kill him. 
The GI Bill of Rights lifted many white Americans into the middle class by facilitating access to home ownership and further education. Those benefits were largely denied to African Americans. Administered through the states, the GI Bill did not take into account, for instance, that many banks wouldn't lend money to black people and many universities wouldn't allow them access. In all of 1947, Delmont points out, just two of the 3,200 home loans guaranteed by the Veterans Administration in Mississippi went to African American borrowers. Estimates indicate that as many as 50,000 black veterans each year did not attend college because there were not enough classrooms or dormitories to accommodate them. More than one in four white veterans went to college on the GI Bill. For African Americans, it was fewer than one in eight. I'm going to stop this article here. It goes on to talk about the relationship between European powers and those individuals from their colonies in Africa, the Caribbean, and Asia that they recruited into their militaries during World War II. That was the article titled "We Return Fighting," written by Gary Young. It was a review of the book "Half American: The Epic Story of African Americans Fighting World War II at Home and Abroad." Written by Matthew F. Delmont. It was published October nineteenth, twenty twenty-three, in the New York Review of Books. That's all the time we have this week. If you would like to listen to this program again or past editions of the African American Hour, you can find them wherever you get your podcast or at the Audio Reader website at reader.ku.edu. I'm Byron Buckner, and thank you for listening to the African American Hour.